So, with that in mind, we are beginning a new series on revival today. And I want to give you a little overview. Can I do that? Just kind of share over the next seven weeks what we're going to be doing. We've called this Lord Do It Again. We're looking at revivals in scripture and history. And today we're going to look at Second Chronicles 7, 1 to 16. So you can look in your Bible. Again, I've told you many times, I encourage you to bring your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, talk to me. I will get you a great Bible. I will get you a study Bible. So I, I want to encourage us to have the scriptures with us. Some of you might say, well, that's not very convenient. I can't do that. There's something that happens when we're accessing things on our phone. I'm all for it. I use my phone and the scripture stuff every day, but I get tempted. Texts start to come in or I get distracted. So it's kind of great to take out this old thing called a hardcover book and, and utilize it. So I encourage you to do that. Bring a notepad or take notes maybe in your phone. So today we're going to look at the glory of God and revival. Next week we're going to look at another Old Testament passage, Nehemiah 8. We're going to look at the word of God and revival. The following week we're going to look at uh, prophetic ministry and revival in John 4, and then we'll look at Acts 2, the Holy Spirit outpouring and revival. And then we'll take a few weeks. I want to do something that is a little unusual. I want to take some time to look at some scripture, but I want to look at the Great Awakenings, and I want to look at the Pentecostal movement in the 20th century, and then the Jesus people and Vineyard movement in the later 20th century, so that we have both biblical and historical perspective when we look at revival. What do I mean when I say revival? I don't mean sawdust on the floor 150 years ago, coming together, someone hollering at you for an hour and a half. That, the Lord can use whatever model he wants. But when we talk about revival, it's a biblical word. It's, it's basically the appearance of God's glory. It's the manifestation of his presence. It's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's an inbreaking of the kingdom of God. So when we talk about revival, we're not talking about holding a camp meeting and drumming up some interest. We're talking about crying out to God to move powerfully, to break into human history again, to do something that only he can do. Typically, there's a couple of tendencies in the church, and one tendency in the church regarding revival is to ignore it, to say, ah, it's too messy to do something like that. Um, we need to work hard. We need to embrace the mundane. We need to be diligent and faithful. We need to read the Bible. We need to pray. We need to evangelize. But when it comes to revival, ah, that's too difficult to manage. So that's one tendency. Another tendency is to overemphasize it. There are some Christians, some churches, and that's all they do. All they talk about is revival, and they frankly can ignore the mundane, the diligent, the day in, the day out, the stuff that isn't shiny and exciting. Do you hear me on that? So what we want to do is steer away from both of those. That's kind of an either-or paradigm, an either-or model. And what we're doing is both and. We are going to go for the Lord breaking through and the Lord to do what only he can do. The Lord bring a revival 
that rocks our country, that changes our nation. That is what we're after. But in the meantime, we're going to fast, we'll pray, we'll grow in character, we'll seek to do those day-in, day-out things that are important. I've been wrestling with this. You'll be hearing about this in the coming weeks, but I've really struggled. I'm about to turn 50, and I thought, ah, I've seen the Lord do some powerful things in the past, and should we back off a little bit? As we get older, should we moderate a little bit? Should we get more stable and secure? And one day I was reading Matthew 6, and it was the disciples talking to Jesus, and they said, Lord, how should we pray? And what does Jesus say in Matthew 6 at verse 9? Does he say, just read the Torah each day, gather together, do those things, don't expect much from God, hold on barely until he does something? Is that, what does he say in Matthew 6, 9? Teach the disciples to pray, your kingdom come. That's a revival prayer. Is it not? It's a revival prayer. It's a prayer for an inbreaking of the kingdom of God. So what we're talking about is nothing novel. It's not a new idea. It's actually from the lips of Jesus. He urged his disciples then, and he urges us now to contend for revival, for the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. So this morning, frankly, I, I hope you leave here a little uh, stirred that this isn't an option. It's not, ooh, I'm going to choose the, the revival option as a Christian. This is main and plain stuff in the scriptures. Jesus was revival. We just celebrated Advent. He is revival in the flesh. The word becomes flesh and dwells among us, and we see his glory, and history has changed. So when we say, Jesus, come, Jesus, bring your kingdom. We're expecting him to save people, to heal the sick, to drive devils out of people's lives. This is the stuff of the scriptures that we're talking about. On this note, um, we've got, I've photocopied some, the first three chapters, is that right? Two or three chapters from this classic by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a great expositor of scripture, a Welshman. He was actually the uh, pastor at Westminster Chapel. And this is a fantastic book on revival. Deeply, it's basically an exposition of scripture and him pleading with the church to wake up and pray and contend for revival. It's kind of in between printing, so I think I've got maybe five copies on the bookshelf out there, and they're 20 bucks, and if you want one. The other thing is I've printed maybe 70 copies at each door. So on your way out, if you're interested in doing a little bit of reading and getting a little more uncomfortable, let uh, Dr. Jones speak to you from the scriptures and uh, listen to what he has to say. It's a classic. J.I. Packer wrote the uh, foreword to it. It's a fantastic book, but read with caution. I've warned you, right? So in this context here of expecting and contending and longing for revival and doing the diligent work and being faithful and seeking to grow in Christlikeness on a daily basis, um, this is a series that we're embarking on. 
This, is a, this also flows from what we've been talking about this year, fresh vision. We're a people, we're a community of worship. And Brad has articulated this and said it over and over again, that we create space in order for us together to experience God's active presence. And so what we're talking about over the next several weeks is rooted in our vision. We want to be a people of the presence of God, a people who are accustomed and and longing for and ruined in order to experience his glory. Amen? So uh, we really are. We're believing over the next several weeks that the Lord is going to fan into flame some things that are in us and that we'll get... uh, experience some of this. So today, look at 2 Chronicles 7, 1 to 15, and I'm going to read it, and then we'll go through and make some some comments. And what we're going to see in this, first of all, like we do with all the texts that we look at, all of the biblical texts, we'll look at some of the things that deal with historical context, and then, Lord, what are you saying to us today in 2020? Happy New Year, by the way. 2020. It's wild, isn't it? Sounds like a Stanley Kubrick science fiction film, 2020. So 2 Chronicles 7 is going to speak to us. And what we're going to see here as I was pondering this passage and doing some prayer, some research, there are eight things that happen when God shows up. When the glory of God comes, when the fire of God's presence visits his people, there's eight things that happen. So we'll go through these, and then in the coming weeks we'll hopefully see and experience some of them. Second Chronicles 7, 1 through 16. We've also been talking about the discipline, disciplining our minds to focus on the public reading of Scripture. Gabe, I see you nodding. Yes, isn't that right? It takes difficult, it's a attention grabbing for us. So why don't we do this? I'm going to ask us to stand. I know Rock has done this in the past, and if you're not comfortable with standing, that's okay. But I'm going to read these 16 verses This is the word of God. When Solomon had ended his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, they bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. King Solomon offered as a sacrifice 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. The priests stood at their posts. The Levites also with their instruments from music to the Lord that King David had made for giving thanks to the Lord. For his steadfast love endures forever. Whenever David offered praises by their ministry, opposite them the priests sounded trumpets and all Israel stood. Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord. For there he offered the burnt offerings and the fat of the offerings of well-being because the bronze altar Solomon had made could not hold the burnt offering and the grain offering. And the fat parts. At the same t- at that time, Solomon held the festival for seven days, and all Israel with him, a very great congregation, from Libo Hamath to the Wadi of Egypt. On the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly. 
for they had observed the dedication of the altar seven days and the festival seven days. On the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people away to their homes, joyful and in good spirits, because of the goodness that the Lord had shown to David and to Solomon and to his people, Israel. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house, all that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. If my people who are called by my name, humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. You can take a seat. Thank you for standing. You got your cardio in, some of you. It's a long passage. It's the word of God. So the first thing in this rich, almost overwhelming passage here is the fire falls and the glory fills. The fire and the glory. And we know from the rest of Scripture, the life of Moses, who encountered the fire of the Lord at the burning bush in Exodus 3. It's what they call in the Old Testament a theophany. It's a physical appearance of the invisible God. And it oftentimes is wrapped in fire. Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a God of fire. He's a consuming fire, and the scriptures show that. Then Exodus, the rest of the book goes on. Exodus 13, the Lord continues to appear as what? A pillar of fire. And the tabernacle in Exodus 40 is filled with fire. And so the scriptures show over and over again what's later talked about here in 2 Chronicles. Elijah, what happens in 1 Kings 18? He prays, and the fire of the Lord falls. Daniel has a vision in Daniel 7, 9. I was actually seeing this in my mind's eye this morning. Daniel sees the Lord and he's on a throne of fire. And from him proceeds a river of fire. My friends, we don't deal lightly with these things. The creator, the maker, the God of the universe is awesome. And we get to interact with him. He is a God of fire. He's a consuming fire, enthroned in fire. And the fire that proceeds from his presence is love. It is holiness. It's his character. And we get to jump into that river of his presence and be changed. That's what this text is talking about. The fire of the Lord that comes into the temple here in answer to prayer, this dedication of the temple is the divine presence. A word that's used here with it, glory, is actually a Hebrew word, kabod. It is the splendor of God. 
and there's a weightiness to it. This word habod means the weight of the glory of God. And this morning, I don't know about you, but I was aware of the weightiness of his glory. And in the coming months, that is what we're going for. Is anyone in on that? Lord, we want life is short. We want to interact with you on a regular basis together as a people and individually in our homes, in our workplace. We want to encounter God who is fire, whose love pours out of his heart with transforming power. So this passage here lets us know that one of the chief things that happens here is that the fire and the glory, the splendor of God's presence enters the temple and it undoes the people. Do we expect this, really, when we come together in 2020? Do we expect for the God of fire to visit us? For the lightning of heaven to come and strike our hearts, for us to be changed? That's what I'm longing for. The idea of just doing church, having some slick music, some slick speaking, doing some things like that. We want to experience the glory and fire of God. A second thing is found in verses two through three. It's awe and worship. Some of us were doing this this morning. Maybe you haven't been to a church. Maybe you're uh, where they do that. People get on our faces. Someone's waving a flag, as Brad had mentioned. When you encounter the living God, you don't sit on your hands. That is not the moment to say, you know what? I'm going to be in control. I'm going to be so composed that people around me marvel at my composure. I've got it together, and I would never do that. I remember my father, he's laughing right now, said, I would never dance. I would never dance in the Lord's presence. And I was, what, 17 or 18 years old, and I prophesied to him. I said, Dad, you're going to dance. And he said, no, no, no. And I said, the Bible says that they danced in the Lord's presence. David did, and the Psalms talk about it, and um, they would lose it oftentimes. And he goes, nah, it's not for me. So the day that we went to a church and he danced, I elbowed him and said, ah, told you. So the point of this is there are many different ways to respond to the consuming fire of the Lord. When I say sit on my hands, sit on your hands, that to me is just saying I refuse to express myself in any way. That's what I'm getting at. There is a time to sit and be absolutely silent and quiet out of awe of who God is. There's no one way to express. But when the Lord is on the scene, you give him the reins. And you lose inhibition. And you say, I am living this short thing called life, and then I'm going to face him. And then I will worship. So friends, this is dress rehearsal. This is practice time to get more comfortable in wasting your life at the Lord's feet and losing inhibition and let him be in control. Worship him in the way that he's showing you to, right? And there's grace and mercy. But these folks here, if you look at the text, verses two and three, the priests couldn't even enter the temple 
when the fire fell and the glory filled, the priest couldn't even come in. It was so awesome and so overwhelming that even the people that had set themselves apart to be in the Lord's presence couldn't enter. And how did the Israelites respond? You can see there, verses 2 and 3, they bowed their faces to the ground out of reverence. I think of Isaiah 6, where he encounters the Lord. Like we were singing this morning, you are holy, you are glorious. And Isaiah says, I'm undone. The people here are undone. They hit the deck. They realize the one with whom they're dealing, and it's overwhelming. Lord, we want to encounter you in the coming days, the coming months, the coming years, so that we feel awe and worship in our hearts. Mike Milner had a word, what was it, six years ago, seven years ago, that one day at our Lord's, the presence of God would be so strong that we wouldn't be able to stand. And so we've been praying into that. Again, this is something only he can do. That is why we're after it. There's no program that can do that. There's no person. There's no worship leader. It is a sovereign move of God to manifest his glory. Amen? And that is what we're after. That is what changes lives. It's what uh, revitalizes churches. It's what brings in lost people. It's what catapults us into the country to plant churches in other countries. We are after the glory of God, and we want awe and worship flowing through our hearts. And I'm going to tell you, we're we're already seeing this a little bit. We're going to have fresh worship songs spring out of that. The river of fire that flows from the presence of God leads to new expressions of worship. So we will have songs about the fire, the glory of God, going to the nations. We'll sing to God, about God, in the presence of God, and we'll see lives transformed. A third thing, should have warned you up front, I'm a little fired up. I'm all in. 2020, I'm all in. Amanda's all in. My family's all in. A third thing here, what happens when the glory and fire of the Lord shows up? There's sacrifice and dedication. We're not going to read it, but you can see it, verses 4 through 6. A lot of details about sacrifice and dedication. And in the Old Testament, sacrifice was all about a physical response to God's goodness. It's basically the Old Testament people saying, we are yours. We depend on you. Everything comes from you, and we're just going to give a token of our gratitude back to you. And that's what's happening in this passage. In the New Testament, what does Paul tell us to do as new covenant people? Romans 12, 1 and 2. What do we present? We present our bodies as a living sacrifice. So the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, to present our bodies as followers of Jesus, and to present our minds to him so that the Holy Spirit can renew us. So in the coming days, we, in fresh ways, are going to present ourselves, devote ourselves, dedicate ourselves to the Lord in response to his goodness, his love, his awesomeness. And we are, uh, we're going to be talking more about how we do this. Our leadership team has been discussing that with the Lord doing all that he's doing, We've got to mature in some ways, frankly, and we've got to help the young people learn what it means to be a fully devoted 
consecrated disciple of Jesus. And so we're going to be talking about what that involves. We give the Lord ourselves, our stuff, our schedules, our skills. All that we are, all that we have is yours. We're changing in your pocket, Lord. You can spend us however you want. Someone else has said time, talents, and treasures. And so in the coming days, our Lord's, we're going to be a people that responds to the Lord and says, I'm yours. We are yours completely. Have us, Lord. There's a beautiful quote from John Wimber that I heard over recent months. And listen to what Wimber says along this line. He says, the economy of the kingdom of God is quite simple. Every new step in the kingdom costs us everything that we have gained to date. Every time we cross a new threshold, it costs us everything that we now have. Every new step may cost us all the reputation and security that we have accumulated up to that point. It costs us our life. A disciple is always ready to take that next step. If there is anything that characterizes Christian maturity, it is the willingness to become a beginner, a beginner again for Jesus. It is the willingness to put our hand in his hand and say, I'm scared to death, Lord, but I'll go with you. You are the pearl of great price. Wimber lived those words. He knew exactly what he was talking about. He was all in. He was devoted, consecrated to his dying day, and we learn from that and want to follow in the same spirit. A fourth thing in this passage, how are we doing? Doing all right? Verse 6, when the glory, the fire of the Lord is present, people are mobilized. Again, Wimber used to say, everyone plays. When God's presence comes, and the church interfaces with that. It's not just for a few people to facilitate the thing. It's for everyone to jump in, for everyone to play their part. God has given us each unique skills and gifts and perspectives. And when the glory of the Lord comes to his people, all of that gets activated the Old Testament temple, this picture that we're looking at, prefigures and paves the way for the New Testament people of God. The Apostle Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 2. Listen to what he says. He says, the church are now the temple. The church is the priesthood. The church is the sacrifice. So this picture that we have with Solomon dedicating the temple and all points to us. This is for all of us. The Reformed tradition talks about the universal priesthood. We are all priests filled with the anointing of Jesus. We are the priests of God to do his work. So people are mobilized. We know in 1 Corinthians 12, we looked at this, 4 to 7, that God activates the gifts in all of us and that there's a manifestation of the presence of God for the common good. This is what we're after in the coming days. My desire, I long to see every person at our Lord's be activated and mobilized 
for you to use your gift, for us to not compare ourselves to one another. We can be encouraged and learn from one another, but I don't wanna look at Ronnie and say, ah, I wish I had your gifts. I w- I'm gonna celebrate your gifts as the Lord mobilizes you, and then you in turn will do the same with me. So people are mobilized quickly here. Verses seven through 10, a fifth thing that happens when the glory and the fire of God touches his people is feasting and fasting. This text here is describing, verses 7 through 10, two festivals, a seven-day festival that was devoted to dedicating the temple that they were in the process of doing, and then in the middle of it, the eighth day, they have a solemn assembly. And frankly, we're not exactly sure what all happened there. In Joel, they hold a solemn assembly in between festivals to fast and pray and humble themselves before the Lord. So that may be what they did. They feast and then they gather together and humble themselves before the Lord, and then they launch into another feast, a feast of tabernacles, and these things symbolize, really, the point of them is that God is among us. God's presence is with us, and so we have these feasts and festivals to honor that. And for us, in 2020, I want to say there's a time for feasting and there's a time for fasting. Some of you are already pressing into the Lord and doing some fasting. And the thing that I would urge you to do is be moderate. Be wise. Don't overdo it. If you haven't fasted before, skip a meal. Give up chocolate for a month. Be, be wise. So hear me on this. Be moderate in your fasting and extravagant in your prayer. You can't spend too much time in prayer. I hope you get more addicted than ever to his presence. You'll pray in your bed. You'll pray in your car. You'll pray in the shower. You'll pray at work. You can never pray too much. But when it comes to fasting, be moderate. Be smart. Be wise. We're actually going to talk about that. Our next series is going to be about spiritual practices. And we'll talk about fasting. Sixth here, verse 11. Plans are accomplished. So the glory of the Lord, the fire of the Lord comes, and suddenly things happen, and we experience this. Some of you have been in the midst of visitations, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and suddenly things get easier. The Lord puts it on the heart for people to go and plant churches, and it just happens naturally. The Lord gives you boldness to share with a colleague at work that you've been chicken about, and all of a sudden you say, I've got courage. The fire of the Lord's love has touched me, so I'm going to go share with that person that I've been hesitant. So things happen, and we're experiencing that here. I wish I had time to recount some of the plans that are being accomplished here. New worship songs, uh, training and mobilizing that's happening. We just got our first invitation since I've been here to send a group to Pasadena to a church and do some training and mobilizing, so we're going to do that in the coming months. We've got some things that are rumbling with some potential church planting. That is what we're gonna be doing in the coming days, the coming years, because the Lord is gonna visit us and things are gonna happen. Seventh here, verses 12 through 13. After all of this is happening, revelation occurs. What happens with Solomon at verse 12 and 13? The Lord appears to him. So in the midst 
of all of this glorious activity, the glory of God, the Lord very personally appears to King Solomon and speaks to him. And he says a number of things. He says, I, I've heard your prayer. You can look at the text there, verses 12 and 13. I've heard your prayer. I've chosen this place. And when things get difficult, when judgment comes, here are the things to do. Let's look at this, and we'll end with this eighth and final point here, verses 13 through 16. And it's really kind of the first couple of verses and these verses here that are the real crux of the passage. And what the Lord says here in verses 13 through 16 is that divine intervention is promised. The Lord says, if you'll do these things, then these things will happen. And there's controversy. If you look here at verse 14, it's one of the most famous passages in all of the Old Testament. If my people who are called by my name do these four things, humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. There's controversy here. Some people will say, well, this only applies to ancient Israel. Only Israel could pray this. Not too quick here. There's an Old Testament scholar at Fuller Seminary named Dr. John Goldingay, and listen to what he says. He argues that God's original promises to Abram and Sarah in Genesis 12 are for all the nations. The point was not exclusion, but inclusion. All people. Then he goes on to point out in Isaiah 19. You can write this down, make a note of this. The Lord says this in Isaiah 19. Listen to this. Blessed be my people Egypt, my handiwork Assyria, and my possession Israel. And so we have Old Testament precedent for the Lord using this language. And Dr. Goldingay basically says that this passage is for the church, for the people of God. If you do these things, if you humble yourself before the Lord, then the Lord will move. So what I want us to do, I want us to look at these four things here. And I want to ask the uh, worship team to go ahead and make their way up. And I want us to do something a little different here as we end. Is that all right with you? I want us to take these four things here and carry it with us into ministry time. I'm going to ask the ministry team to go ahead and come up as well. If you're on the ministry team, we've got a lot of new folks that have been activated and mobilized. If you'll come up. And as we always do on Sundays, if you're sick in your body, you need a breakthrough of any kind, you need prayer and a relationship, marriage, we are always here to pray. But today what I want us to do in these few minutes that we've got left here is to take these four things and for us to, to spend a moment just in the Lord's presence doing this. You can look at the text. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wrong ways, then I will hear, forgive, and heal. So Lord, we want to take a moment in your presence here. We humble ourselves before you. Turn to the Lord in prayer now.